grave cannot hold you. Death has not given the final word. Jesus Christ is risen. And because Jesus Christ is risen, we know, Lord, that you have perfected. You've perfected us for all time. We know that our justification and our forgiveness is secure. We know that our iniquities are forgiven. We know that you remember our sins no more. We know that we no longer have to fear death. We know, Lord, that there is life beyond the grave. And for all who confess faith in Jesus, you have promised that we receive eternal life and we will never die. And the hope that we have in our hearts is the life you have called us to, the life that we anticipate is a life filled with joy, is a life filled with the fullness of life that you intended, the life that we always long for. And so, Lord, we are grateful. We are grateful people in this place to be the redeemed the ones who have been justified and sanctified and the ones who will one day be glorified. And Father, as we learn more about you, may you cause in our hearts an increase in wonder, an increase in love. And as we come to comprehend the great love that you have for us in sending Jesus to rescue us, may our hearts overflow with gratitude. And may, Lord, you put into our hearts that indescribable joy for we know that you are for us and not against us for christ is risen and who can stand opposed to him we win the day because christ has won it for us and it's in his powerful name we pray amen amen good morning church oh it's good to see you all there's some lame football game today but we not we don't need to worry about that We're going to cut to the chase. If you have a Bible, and uh, I expect that you do, um, I encourage you to open it up, make your way to the book of Hosea. I want to let you know about uh, one thing that we have coming up. Um, Next Sunday at 6.30 p.m., we are going to gather together, all who are able, and we're going to pray for our church, pray for our community, pray for our world, pray for a whole bunch of needs. And so we're going to meet together at 6.30 p.m. in room 129-130, which is just down the hallway over here. And I invite you to come so that way we can spend some concerted time uh, praying together, interceding uh, on behalf of one another for the Lord's work in and through our church. Um, Hopefully you found the book of Hosea. Uh, I want to let you know about a couple things that will kind of orient you to this this series. I've I've had a a couple, um, you know, just questions feedback-wise. One of them is uh, some folks have noticed that our sermon-based study guide that we produced, the titles for the study are different than the titles for the sermon. And that is actually by design. Um, And that's basically because we, uh, yeah, we spend a lot of time preparing months in advance for the sermon series, but I don't really prepare for the sermons until uh, it's closer to the series. And so um, there's a difference, but I just want you to know when when you'll see like week four, it's not on the screen right now. Uh, Let's go back to that. There we go. Yes. Week four, you see it? So the weeks will match up. So there's not 13 weeks in the study guide and, you know, 11 weeks in the sermon. So they'll match up. So if you get confused and it's just driving you insane, you're okay. Uh, that's, that's how it works. Another thing is this. Some folks have said, uh, how come you don't put the main source or the main scripture on the screen like the Hosea stuff? And I do that by design as well. And that is because I am hoping that you will bring a Bible with you. And I am forcing you to feel inadequate and left out. Um, so... <laughs> 
I want you to bring a, a, a Bible and, and that way you have it open in your lap and you can read for yourself. And then all the other verses that I'm going to use, uh, that will put those on the screen. So that way you don't have to turn your Bibles and mess your pages up and stuff like that. And I just like to, to leave the book open uh, that we're studying together. And I know some of you have chosen to use your devices for your Bibles, but I encourage you silence them as much as you can. Uh, that means no notifications, no push notifications, turn all that off. Because subtly in the back of your mind, you know there's a world of possibility in this thing. And I can do anything but listen to him. And so uh, I just want to encourage you, um, you know, to, to, to push back that temptation. And uh, last time I checked, these books, they don't ding or, or buzz or anything like that. So uh, it's preferable. All right. So you do have your Bibles, uh, um, Hosea chapter 4, Hosea chapter 4. Some folks have actually read ahead in the book of Hosea, and uh, they then, you know, have uh, contacted me somehow, and they go, uh, Pastor Phil, so I have one question. What's going on? Because I'm reading this book, and I have no idea how to make heads or tails of it. I have no idea what's happening here, and I, and I totally get it. I said, yeah, that's okay. And the reason why you're having some, maybe you, you're, you're, I don't know, you're rubbing up against something uh, as you read this book, and you're noticing that there's a... It's the same themes that keep coming up over and over. Like how many times are we actually, am I going to preach on judgment and sin? And it's like, I think once or twice is good, but like eight, nine times, you're kind of like, do we get it? We get it. Um, But we have to realize one of the, the things that makes reading the Old Testament in particular difficult for us is because we're coming to the Bible from a Western logic perspective. What I mean by that is from the ancient Greeks all the way until today, those who are in Western civilizations, uh, from Greece all the way over to North America, we typically think in linear, sequential, logical form. And so what we expect is that our Bibles, when we pick them up, will follow that pattern. It'll just be this sequence and it'll be logically connected and one thing will lead to the next and it's very propositional. And what I mean by that is it's just information. This is like an encyclopedia giving me information. But that is not what this book is. This book is written by people who were Eastern in their logical perspective. It was written for people who are more Eastern in their logical perspective. And so you and I coming from and reading it from, with Western eyes are going to find it difficult. Eastern logic is less logical and linear like this. Instead, Eastern logic is much more cyclical. It's kind of like a, a downward spiral. And what happens is the people would kind of circle around and touch an idea a couple different times and then bring it down and bring it down until finally they arrive at the point. And you're like, oh, okay. And so if you think about it like this, you have uh, idea A, B, and conclusion C. So A, B, and C, conclusion C. And, and what you'll read is you'll be like, okay, here we go. A, okay, I get that idea. I get that idea. Okay, that conclusion. Okay, that makes sense. But then the Bible will go back to B and then come back to C and then go to A and C and then go A, B, and C. And you're going, whoa, is this just like repeating over and over? Yes. And so you're going to feel like Hosea is repeating itself over and over, and that's because it is. So here's, here's why. Is, uh, I brought my phone as a pure prop. That's it. And so if you look at the phone this, du- this direction, uh, we see that it's kind of flat and, and it's fairly thin. But then if all of a sudden I begin to turn it, 
it's a different perspective. If I turn it a different way, it's a different perspective. Different perspective, different perspective. And so what happens is God takes a truth and what he does is he puts it in written form and he says, okay, here's the truth. You see it? And we're like, yeah, yeah. And he goes, you see it now? Yeah, yeah. How about now? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I see it. Okay, yeah, yeah. And what he's doing is he's getting us to perceive these truths from different perspectives so that the wisdom we gain from it will be multifaceted. And what I mean by that is it's not just one thing that you learn, but it's one thing learned from about seven different perspectives. So that way when you apply it in your life, you have seven different scenarios in which you can apply it. You tracking with me, church? Okay. Some of you are like, no, I hate this. <laughs> Push notifications back on. <laughs> so here we go. Uh, Jose, oh, before we do that, let me, let me also say this. You're probably looking at this and you're thinking, he's going to preach for an hour on six verses. There's a bunch of verses in this book. Let's speed this thing up. These six verses actually kind of set the trajectory for the rest of the book. The first three chapters were kind of like, they, they, they describe the whole book, but now verses, or chapter four, all the way to the end of the book, what they're going to do is they're going to revolve around three main ideas over and over again. And so what I'm going to do is introduce you to these ideas in verses one through six, which will set the trajectory for the rest of the sermon series uh, for the next eight weeks, but it will help us to kind of grasp and understand the book of Hosea in its fullness. All right. With that being said, here we go. Hosea chapter four, verses one through six. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Today, we're going to see how God lays out a case against his people, Israel. And the case he's going to lay out is for their blatant faithlessness to the covenant that they entered into. God gives absolutely no exceptions to the people or their leaders. Everyone is guilty. And so what's going to happen is God is bringing his people into a courtroom scene where God is the judge, he's the holy and righteous judge, and he has enacted a law and a whole bunch of people have broken that law, and so he has summons them to the courtroom and he has an indictment for them, which means he's going to set them before him and he's going to say, here are the charges against you, boom, 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 boom. And the charges against the people are going to be on the evidence of two things, sins of omission and sins of commission. And I'll explain what that is in a second. 
But first, what I want us to see is that this is a typical practice of God. He, being the righteous, holy judge, will often bring his people into a courtroom scenario and say, this is my law, this is how you broke it, you're the defendant, make a case. And so we see it like in Micah 6 and Isaiah 3, where there's an indictment of the Lord. And he says, uh, the Lord has an indictment against his people, he will contend with Israel. The Lord has taken his place to contend, he stands to judge peoples. So when you go back to Hosea chapter four, verse one, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy. That word controversy is contention or a case or an indictment with the inhabitants of the land. In other words, God's saying, I'm the holy judge. I'm bringing you, summonsing you to the court because you've broken the law. Now you're on trial as a defendant and here are the charges against you. Now, when God lays out the evidence against his people, like I've already said, he's going to talk about sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins of omission are the things we ought to do but don't. It's the good stuff you and I know we should do and we don't do it. Sins of commission are the things that we know we shouldn't do, but we do them anyways. So how the Bible describes sins of omission is like this from the book of James. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. If you've ever been in a scenario like I've been before where you know like, okay, um, I, I personally got this grievance against this person and I'm choosing not to go make it right with them. I'm just harboring bitterness and I won't you know, do that because I don't want to feel uncomfortable and all that kind of stuff. If you've ever been like me, where you've been in that situation, where you know the good and the right thing to do, and you don't do it, it's sin. It's not simply like, ah, I don't want to be uncomfortable. It's not like, ah, you know, I know that would be best, but you know, I just, it's inconvenient. No, 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 no. It's sin. If you know the good or the right thing to do and you fail to do it, it's sin, regardless of what it is. And so these next things that he's going to list are the sins of omissions, the things which are right that ought to be done but are not being done. You and I know these two phrases, um, the spirit of the law and then the letter of the law. Have you heard these phrases? The spirit of the law is kind of the idea that, all right, there's rules and, and you know, like there's kind of like some wiggle room but the letter of the law is like, you better follow everything exactly and precisely. So sins of omission tend to be kind of the spirit of the law. Sins of commission tend to kind of be the letter of the law stuff. And so what we're going to see first is the sin, sins of omission, and there's threefold. These three sins of omission, things that are right and good that aren't done, are going to reappear more than once for the rest of the book of Hosea. They're kind of cyclical. And it is the rest of verse one. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. So we're gonna break these down one by one. First is the sin of omission regarding faithlessness. So these folks, though God has called them to be faithful, they actually are faithless. Now, the Hebrew word here, faithless, could also be interpret, or can also be uh, translated as truth or integrity. Integrity. 
Now, the word integrity is probably the better one, and here's why. I don't know about you, but if you've ever driven over the Antioch Bridge, sometimes you're driving over and you're like, I kind of got to gun it. I got to go fast up and over this thing because I don't know if this bridge is structured, like has structural integrity. <laughs> when big trucks drive over that bridge and you're driving it, you're kind of like, nah, bro, mm-mm. And you're like, I got to get off this thing. I don't want to end up in the river. And so I'm questioning the structural integrity of the bridge. I'm not asking if the bridge tells the truth. I'm asking if the inner workings of that bridge is sound. Is it reliable? Is it trustworthy? Is it not going to crumble? And so this idea of faithfulness is that internally as human beings, is your heart sound? Or are there cracks in your heart? Are you soon to give in and give way? Are you a person that lives genuinely without hypocrisy? Do you say what you do and do what you say? That kind of stuff. And in Israel, the people were faithless. Their hearts were not sound. And one of the ways they, we, we know this is because whatever comes out of a person's mouth, it really is the overflow of their, overflow of their heart, as Jesus says. So as you listen to what people say and how they talk and who they talk about and the manner in which they talk about it, you can learn a great deal about that person's heart. Now, the way Isaiah put it at the time of Hosea is really telling. It's very helpful. He says justice, that is doing the right thing, treating people with equity. It's turned back and righteousness stands far away. Why? in this day and age, uh, in the time of Hosea, was justice not found and righteousness was far away from the culture. It was because truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. In other words, because the society had chosen to no longer entertain truth in the public square, then righteousness and justice are compromised. And that is true of any society. The moment any society decides, eh, truth is not that big a deal, you can just kiss justice and righteousness goodbye. And you and I see that today. Now, I'm going to step on toes a lot in this sermon. Um, I'm doing it by way of example. I'm not doing it because I have an ax to grind or anything like that. But I will say this, when you look in our culture today and you hear people spreading craziness and like on social media doing stuff, well, they say things like uh, the COVID vaccine has a microchip in it. Oh, what? And the reason I bring that up is because it's like metaphysically impossible on 75 different levels. Like the, the, the size of the needle, the size of a micro, there's just so many things, brothers and sisters, that would make that impossible. We'd have to have some alien technology if we're, that's going to happen. And yet people are like, no, it's true. I watched a video on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> YouTube. Everything on YouTube is true. Or the other one that would be very popular right now is, is uh, I actually was in a discussion with somebody who claimed with a, not even a smirk on their face, they were being 100% genuine, men 
can menstruate and also get pregnant. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you're serious? Like, this is crazy. And yet in our culture today, in our society today, biologically true things, metaphysically true things, like contrary to physics, it doesn't matter. People are like, no, it's true. But, but it's not at all. Impossibly true. And when we live in a society that's like that, where truth is lacking, look at verse 15. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. In other words, when truth is lacking and people believe all kinds of crazy nonsense, then the people who stand up and go, bro, that's dead wrong, that's not true, then you make yourself to be a prey. People will turn on you and devour you. And I'm telling you, over the last two and a half years or so, uh, I've done some, I, I've said some things weren't true and people, yeah. And I get that. I, I get that. And you've probably gotten that when you have told people that what they believe is not true because it's not true. And then they turn on you. So, brothers and sisters, may we be warned that many self professing believers in Yahweh and God and self-professing Christians today, they are committing faithlessness by committing themselves to truthlessness. And the result is that there is lacking justice and lacking righteousness. God's expectation of his people in the Old Testament are the same as the New Testament. That is to say, his people are meant to be people of truth. Let me show you this from Colossians 3, where the Apostle Paul says, do not lie to one another. Any gray area in that? No. Why shouldn't we lie to one another? Because you have put off the old self, that is your sinful nature, with its practices, and one of the practices of not being a believer is you lie, and you have put on the new self, which implies you tell the truth. And the new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So let me put it logically for you in this. When one is renewed in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is you come to saving faith in Jesus, you are made new again. And one of the results of you being made new again is that what comes out of your mouth is not lies but truth. Therefore, if we continue to perpetuate lies and lies and lies, we must question whether or not we have been made new in Jesus. Did you see it? We've got to be very careful, brothers and sisters, because truth matters tremendously. And we have to be committed to it because God is a God of truth. And there is no such thing as my truth and your truth in the sense that reality can shapeshift according to my desires. It doesn't exist. All right, let's go on to the second one. More could be said, should be said, can't be said because I have a clock. All right, here we go. Steadfast love, here's number two. This is a sin of omission and steadfast love. If you were here at our church, uh, I don't know when it was, a couple years ago, we, we studied the book, of Hose, or the book of Ruth. And in the book of Ruth, we learned about this amazing story about God's redemption. And we also learned this Hebrew word called hesed. Hesed is this Hebrew word which captures the idea of absolute 
faithfulness because of love. It's the way in which God loves his people where he's absolutely committed to them to love them and to see their well-being. That is his, that's what he desires. He's totally faithful and committed to them. And in the land, we see the people, God's people, are committing sin, the sin of omission of not being people of steadfast love. That is to say, although God has loved them with an overwhelming and relentless love, their response to that love is lovelessness. So let me show you, and this is gonna be a lot of scripture, but I want you to see it because this will help us as we continue on in the book of Hosea. In Deuteronomy chapter seven, God is gonna lay out his hesed love, how much he loves his people, and then we'll see later on what that means. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to, his, to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. What's amazing about this text is a couple things. One, God says, look, there was nothing special about you. <laughs> That's not why I picked you. I picked you because I wanted to. I loved you. And I just simply chose you because I loved you. And now that I've placed this love on you and chose you for myself, I acted by redeeming you and rescuing you from your slavery. And that's exactly what we see throughout the Bible where God just loves his people, chooses his people, redeems his people, and then sets them on a course of faithfulness. And it's because of this love that we're gonna see what God expects, that God is not the one Let's look at verse 11. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the hesed that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground, your grain, your wine, your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. We have to think about the logical way that this works, brothers and sisters. Many people believe when you read this, you're like, oh, okay, so they got redeemed, they got blessed because they kept the law. No. First, it was love. God loved, God rescued, God redeemed, redeems. And then he says, okay, now here are the commandments that I expect for your life. And if you are going to obey my commandments, then I tell you what, it's going to go well for you. Why? Think of a manufactured good. Let's think of a cell phone. Of all the companies and all the people in the world to know best how to properly use the iPhone, wouldn't it be Apple? That makes sense, right? They made the darn thing, right? 
So you're like, okay, that makes sense. So they give us little tips on how to use it, and we go, okay, I'll trust them because they know best. They're the ones who made it, manufactured it, and all that kind of stuff. Who do you think knows best how to live as a human being? God must. Why? Because he's the creator. And so when the creator loves you, when the creator redeems you, and then the creator says, this is how you can best live, we should take it on his authority that he knows best since we're made in his image, and we should just go. And when we do it, the thing that God has asked us to do, and God promises and actually comes through for us by reward or blessing, we should not think, oh, yeah, so actually, I, by my own strength and ingenuity and creativity, I work really hard to obey everything God does, and then, because of that, he sees my hard work and my good efforts, and he accepts me, and then he will make me his own people. Oh, that's not how it works. God loves us, and in that love, he redeems us restores us, gives us a new identity, and then says, go and live out that identity in light of my redemption. And if you do that, and you obey what I'm telling you to to do, it's gonna go well with you, because I made you, and I made this world, and I know best how it works. I can't tell if you guys are following me or not. Okay. So what is it that God expects? Deuteronomy 30, where God says through Moses to the people on the edge of the promised land, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, and if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you will live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, And you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give to them. We should not read this text as, oh, okay, so as long as I obey God and do everything he says, then he will bless me and then he will accept me and then he will do all this stuff for me. No, 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 no. He already loved. He already redeemed. He already restored. He's already given an identity and now he's saying, go and do this. And since I am the maker and creator of all things, I know best how the world should work and how you should live in it. And if you follow my pattern of how to live in this world, it's gonna go good for you. Not because you've earned it, but because you're just simply doing what I'm telling you to do. Because I know what's best. And so, what I'm trying to say is this. When we comprehend and we experience the overwhelming love of God, that he seeks to do good to us and for us, he seeks to make us his own. And from that comprehension and from that experience, what happens is 
his love begins to well up inside of us as though it was a reservoir. And the more of God's love we experience by remembering his overwhelming love for us, the more the reservoir of God's love rises in our hearts to the point where at some point it needs to get out. And as you open the gate of the dam, so to speak, and the water comes pouring out, you start realizing that the more love I have in my heart, the more love I have in my heart to give out of my heart. In other words, for me to be able to love other people well, I first need to understand how much God has loved me. And if I don't have a grasp of the depth and the breadth and the height and the length of God's love for me, then I am going to love other people in a deficient way. But if I have a full reservoir of God's love, then I have much love to give other people. But we try to do it opposite. We think that by pouring out our love to others, somehow that's gonna fill us up with God's love, but it actually works the other way around. We gotta go to God first. And I think that's why Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. But notice the way that he describes this. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Which means it is good that you desire to love your neighbor, love your friends, love your family. But the way to best love them is by loving them like Jesus loved them. And you don't know what that means unless you have first known Jesus' love and experienced Jesus' love. And once you have known it and once you've experienced it, then you can love people well. But we need Jesus first. And I love the idea that when we comprehend and apprehend and experience the love of God in Jesus Christ, everything else becomes harmonious. Watch this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Doesn't that sound like Deuteronomy 7? Chosen ones, holy ones, beloved ones. Yes. He says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Which means, once we come to understand and experience the forgiveness of God, we are well positioned to be forgivers in the world. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Another way to say it is this. If we will pursue, because of our identity as chosen ones, holy and beloved, to put on in our life, to put on these things like compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness, but we tie it all together with a resounding overwhelming love, then everything becomes harmonious. And I don't know about you, but we live in a world filled with disharmony, do we not? And I don't think the solution to the disharmony is more unkindness and pride and boastfulness and lack of compassion 
and vengeance that won't resolve anything because harmony comes from love. And so the people, go back to Hosea 4, 1, they didn't have steadfast love. They were forgetting God's love for them and therefore they were not able to love one another the way they ought to. And so God says, there's a a sin of omission. I'm laying this evidence out. You're guilty because you don't love me and you don't love others. Thirdly is this, there's no knowledge of God in the land. For us today, we have heard this so many times that there is a difference between people who are thinking people and those who are feeling people. And I get it, there's some of that. But sometimes we then say, well, in our culture today, being a feeling person is good. But being a thinking person, not good. Because after all, 1 Corinthians talks about uh, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, right? And so sometimes we think that, okay, being a Christian is not about what you know. It's not about growing in your knowledge of the Lord. It's not about knowing your Bible. It's about loving. And I'm saying, yes, but it's not merely loving. It's also knowing. And I give this example all the time, and it's helpful. But if I said to you all, I love my wife. I love the fact that she's 6'3", that she's redhead, she has green eyes, She's left-handed. I just love those things. And you come to realize my wife is none of those? You'd be like, oh, you got a second wife we don't know about? Because you've just described somebody that is not the woman you're married to. And yet sometimes people are like, I just love God. Oh, I love him. Mm, love, 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 love him. Tell me about this God you love. And then they start spewing nonsense oh my God, Mm. he's not wrathful, he doesn't judge anyone. He always gives you your dreams and desires. (laughs) You made that God up. That God don't exist. And brothers and sisters, nobody can love something they don't know. (laughs) I know, I love the lost people of some like random island in the deep South Pacific. No, you don't. You don't. We have to, we love what we know. And the more you know, the more you end up loving. It's one of those reciprocal things. The more I learned about my wife, the greater my love became. And people say, I will never love you more at their wedding day. Sometimes I, I tell young couples, you can't write your own vow because you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and they will... I will never love you more than I love you in this moment. Let's not do this then. Because you do not understand what the Lord has for you. Marriage is the gift of God to sanctify you. (laughs) And there is great love and great knowledge that comes with both. All that to say the people were failing to know God. And instead they were trusting in other things. They were like, yeah, I don't need to know God. I don't need to like put my trust in God. I got this other stuff I can rely on. So here's a few things that they were relying on. Wisdom, military might, and wealth. And yet the Lord says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts Boast in this, 
that he understands and knows me. That I am Yahweh, the Lord, who practices hesed, justice and righteousness in the earth. Tying it all to truth. And why we should love truth and delight in truth and pursue truth as well as love, as well as knowing God, is because of the last line you see on the screen. For in these things I delight. How in the world do we think that we're going to bring glory and delight to God's heart by saying, eh, I'm not going to know anything about you? What? I don't care about truth. Justice, eh, who cares? Knowing God is important. But there's another dichotomy in our culture today that we've got to work hard against. And that's the idea that somebody can know God himself or only know about God, as if that's possible. It's not possible. And here's why I say that is because throughout the Bible, we see where knowledge of God involves both cognition, which is thinking, and volition, which is will, or it could even be emotions. Throughout the Bible, those are always linked together. So if one thinks, well, I just have a, a, you know, I just know about God. No, 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 you don't know God. Well, I don't know a lot of true things about God. I just know God personally. No, no, you don't know God. Because it's got to be both. And so getting back to the thinking and feeling, I'm, I'm always trying to advocate this. Brothers and sisters, don't unnecessarily minimize stuff and oversimplify stuff. Be a thinking and feeling person. Think deeply and feel deeply. But also, know God with your mind. Know God with your heart. Know God by experience. Know God volitionally. And why is that so important? It's because of this. Jesus says this is eternal life. That they, the believers, know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is about knowing God. And it's at least knowing God cognitively and volitionally. We have to know God. There's no heaven without knowledge of God. And the people, if you look at this in verse 1, there's no knowledge of God in the land. They just decided, eh, that takes too much time and energy. Let's just focus on our military power, getting wealth, and accumulating great wisdom. And brothers and sisters, you and I should pause and I, tell this to, I used to tell this to college students all the time. You have to be very careful because you can't take a four-year hiatus in your relationship with the Lord in order to learn other things. You're always being discipled by something. And if you decide for these four years, my focus is academics, that's all I'm gonna worry about and church stuff will come later, it won't. And there's a whole entire list of people who we could just rattle off of who walked away from the faith. So, he says, here are the sins of omission. Lack of truth. There's no love of God and neighbor. And they don't want to know me. And then God is going to break out the evidence of sins of commission. Now, sins of commission are defined like this. 1 John 3. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And that is to say... 
Sins of commission are the things that we do that we shouldn't because they break God's law. Okay, sins of omission. You know what you should do and you're not. Sins of commission. You know you shouldn't be doing that and you keep doing it. And here's what God lays before them. Five sins. There is swearing, and that would be taking the Lord's name in vain. Lying, that would be breaking the commandment, do not lie. Murder, the commandment, don't murder. Stealing, the commandment, don't steal. And committing adultery, don't commit adultery. These are very plain. And what's really interesting about this is God lists these five, and we know there was other ones, like the 10th commandment to not covet. We know they broke that, but there's only five listed here. And I think five's enough. Because the way the Bible describes the law of God is that if you break even one law, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. So here's what I mean, James 2. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. I don't know about you, but the way I read this is I sense a tinge of not sarcasm, but just kind of like, mm, you sure? Let me, let, me, let me read it to you in the way I hear it in my head. Uh, if you really fulfill the, law, the royal law according to the scriptures, you should love the neighbors yourself. Mm, then I guess you're doing well. But are you really? Let's be honest. Are you really loving your neighbor as yourself? And all of us should be, at first we're like, I I think I'm doing a good job. I'm not sure anymore. Yeah, I'm not. Oh, man. And that's the whole point. And then James goes on to say, if you show partiality, that is you have preferential treatment for some people rather than others, like you like certain people more than you like others, you are committing sin. And you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Okay. Since that's true, then if I, like for instance the Ten Commandments, if I break one of the Ten Commandments, I'm guilty of breaking all of them. Oh, man, I'm in big trouble. All right, so then God says, oh, yeah, but you're not guilty of just one. Um, There's at least five. I could go on. And you just feel the weight of that of like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in big trouble. One is bad, but like five, I'm in big trouble. And then he goes on to describe this. He says, they, being these sinners in the land, they're breaking all bounds. And the phrase there means to break all boundaries. It's the idea that you kind of have like a little cage that you are trying to contain your sin. And then all of a sudden, it can't contain the sin anymore. It rises too high and becomes too powerful. And a couple years ago, the Oroville Dam up in Northern California busted. Too much water, too much pressure, and it was not, the, the structure of the dam did not have integrity. And so it bursted. And a whole bunch of stuff happened. 
The way that we sin, brothers and sisters, is we kind of accumulate sin one upon another and one sin leads to another. And you know exactly what I'm talking about because you were 8, 10, 12, or 26 where you lied once and next thing you know you lied 38 times you don't know how you got there. You're like, man, how do, I don't even know how to undo this. I'm in trouble. It just snowballs. And it breaks the bounds, which means there's no limit to how much sin you and I are able to commit. And here's one thing that I'm starting to realize more and more. You and I are capable, if it wasn't for the bounds of like law and, I don't know, political correctness and and God, you and I would kill each other pretty regularly. And I think we would kill each other over silly things, like somebody gossiped about me and it's like, what? What'd you say? And next thing you know, you just keep living it up, living it up, and you're thinking in your mind, pretty soon you go over there and, I don't know, you you bomb their house and you kill them. You're like, that's what you get. Won't gossip about me no more. Because that's our nature. We just like, it just gets worse and worse and we fan into flame the sin. And here's how James put it. He asked this really good question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Think back to a family gathering or a bunch of friends together. Fight breaks out. Maybe not physically, but verbally. Why? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. Wait, whoa. You, you covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. That's a big step, is it not? Look at verse two. You desire to have something, so you kill someone. I know that sounds crazy, but actually in the news, you can read about this. People will kill each other over iPhones. Somebody got murdered for the Jordan 1s. Murdered on the street. Took his shoes. Shoes. And I think if we understand the New Testament correctly, where murder is not just where you physically kill someone, but, but Jesus actually ramps it up and says, if you have anger or hatred in your heart, you commit murder. I actually think you and I will look at what somebody else has or whatever, and you're like, man, I wish I had that. And then pretty soon, we're like, I hate that they have it. And we begin to murder them in our hearts. Why do we do that? He goes on to say, you do not have because you do not ask, and you do not ask, or you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, you are committing all these sins, swearing, verse two, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. Your sin is breaking all the bounds. There's there's nothing to contain your sin. It's just one thing after another. And then he goes on to say, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Or injustice follows more injustice. Or sin produces more sin. Just over and over and over. So here's God in his courtroom as the holy and righteous judge. I got something against you people. Come. I'm charging you with sin. Sins of omission and sins of commission. And we, the defendants, because we have to include ourselves in this, we go, what evidence do you have? All right, this, 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 this. Here's the charges against you. And you and I 
we probably, if we're being honest, would go, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Guilty is charged. And then he goes on verse three, therefore, therefore, in light of every, all the things that are just uh, been described here, the evidence of their guilt, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. That is to say, the place in which God's people under God's rule, where they live, the whole thing, top to bottom, as far as the east is from the west, that kind of stuff, the whole entire thing is in a state of languishing and mourning. And also the beasts, and also the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. In other words, what God is saying is because of your sin, your natural, physical world that you live in has become corrupt. Brothers and sisters, you and I think that our sins are like private affairs. Like I can just get away with sin in my own heart, in my own bedroom, whatever. But the reality is your sin is more communal and more cosmic, what I mean is in the whole universe, and has effects on the natural world more than you realize. Some of us sin in ways that there's physical problems because of it. But there's also social problems because of it. And the physical problems because of it. And we as Christians need to recapture this whole concept of the physical fallenness of the world because of sin. Here's what God said to Adam. Remember Adam and Eve sinned? And God comes to curse Adam and says, because you listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat, Cursed is the ground because of you. In other words, the very place that was supposed to be for you, to bless you, to provide for you, this world I created for you to be a steward of, because you have sinned, the whole thing is now affected. But through this judgment, God is going to make sure that we understand, uh, and, and there's no wiggle room here, that his judgment is severe it's swift. You see, the Lord saw all the wickedness of man. This is the time of Noah. And I want you to read verse five, with, not, not with me out loud, but just, just follow along with me because there's some crazy stuff in this verse. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Everything? Everything you ever thought about maybe wanting to do is wicked? Yep. Everything you ever dreamed or hoped for, longed for, it's evil continually. My goodness. It's verses like this that make me find it almost unbelievable. Actually, it is unbelievable that humanity is basically good. I don't think so. I think every intention of the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually. I actually think that. Because even the good things we want to do, we usually want to do them for not good reasons. And so the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for I'm sorry that I made them. In other words, God is grieving for sin. And so he says, I'm wiping everything away, save Noah and his family. Now let's go back to Hosea chapter four, verse three. The land is mourning, everyone who dwells in it is languishing, beasts, birds. 
Doesn't that sound familiar to Genesis 6? But if you notice in the time of Noah, uh, God doesn't mention anything about the fish. Why? It's a worldwide flood. They're probably loving it. They're like, oh, more water? Yeah. I'm gonna go places I haven't been before. But now God says, verse three, chapter four, uh, beasts, birds, and even the fish of the sea are gonna be taken away. There's nothing in creation which is untouched by sin. Nothing. Everything is affected. But God gives us hope. And this is one of my favorite texts of scripture. The creation, man, the natural world, it waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And the natural world itself, creation itself, trees and rocks and everything else is living in hope that it will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That word in verse 22, groaning, is the same Greek word which, is, which translates the word languish in Hosea 4.3. The whole created world is languishing or groaning, and why? Because it's been subjected to sin. It's been enslaved to sin. It's being corrupt, or it's, it's corrupting, and creation wants to be set free. Not only creation, though, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we are groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's in this hope that we're saved. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In other words, brothers and sisters, we ourselves are one day going to live in full knowledge of God with a physical body. And we will live in a physical place where there are trees and rocks and streams and meadows. We are not gonna be disengaged floating around goblins and ghouls and all this kind of stuff. Because everyone in their mind is like, why would I wanna go to heaven if that's what it's like? We're just like invisible, just floating around everywhere with nothing to do, sit in a church pew forever that's lame like I went to Golden Hills I sat there long enough (laughs) no brothers and sisters everything is touched by sin but God's redemption is so expansive that everything which was touched by sin is also touched by his redemption So don't worry if you don't get to snorkel in the Great Barrier Reef. Don't worry about if you didn't get to go see the Himalayas. Greater things await you. And maybe they will be the Himalayas, just greater. And maybe it will be these things, but greater. But don't worry. God has great things in store for us. All right, verse five through six, four through six. And we'll wrap it up here. What God does here is amazing. God anticipates a move that you and I do all the time when we feel guilt. It's called deflection. It's the feeling you get of like, ooh, yeah, I've lied and stolen and all this kind of stuff, and man, yeah, I feel guilty, ooh. But then what we do is we try to avoid how we feel 
the def- and by deflecting it, what we do is we, we just point to other people. Oh, I feel guilty because of that sin he just pointed out. <laughs> but I'm not as bad as my neighbor. That guy, pff, you should see him. Or another thing that you hear a lot in our, in our culture today is this, is this finger pointing towards other people where we say, what about them? And it's called whataboutism. It's so funny to hear because you hear it all the time. It's like, hey, uh, you, you just called that person a foul name. Well, they called me a name. Oh, okay, well, then it's all good. And we just keep doing the what about, what about, what about them? Look at what they say. Look at what they do. And so God anticipates that we would do that as we stand before God where he's like, you're guilty. And you're like, what about them? And God's like, they'll have their turn right now. It's you. And so he says, let no one contend, verse 4, let none accuse. Because that's what you and I do is we are self-righteous finger pointers. Where God says, you're guilty. And you're like, I'm not as guilty as them. Look at them, them, and them. They're all guilty. God's like, whoa, 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 don't be contending with them. You're not the judge. I am. And you better not be accusing other people. I'm the one who brings the charges against the people. And then God says this, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. And what's happening, I think, at this time is the priest and the prophet are the leaders of God's people who feel themselves morally superior And when God says the people are wicked, the priests and the prophets go, I know, tell me about it. Look at these people, they're wretched. And God says, whoa, 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 Mr. High Horse Moral Guy. Uh, You better not be accusing these people because you're just as guilty as they are. And that should wake them up. You see, self-righteous finger pointers, they lack self-awareness. And what I mean is that they don't realize They haven't done uh, the honest work of asking themselves, but am I guilty? So here's what the Apostle Paul says to these self-righteous finger pointers. In Paul's day, it was people who were ethnically Jewish. They believed that they were morally, ethnically, socially superior than the Gentiles. And so Paul says, okay, if you call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law, you boast in God, you know his will, prove what is excellent because you were instructed from the law, And if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, you are an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Okay, you're so morally superior than everyone else. If that's true, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You see, while you go on preaching against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor or hate idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. And as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Self-righteous finger pointers will be quick to point out the faults of others and quick to display their own credentials. They will lack the self-awareness to realize their own sin. And this is what makes sin so devast- this kind of sin so devastating. 
is because they don't even recognize it. And I'm, again, toe-stepping, and I'm, I'm not trying to be political here, but I'm just trying to help you understand how this life could apply. A couple, maybe a year ago, I watched in the news as a bunch of people were storming the Capitol. And I know a lot of people are like, it's Antifa. We know that's now a lie. And I watched as these flags were going up, and, and there were some pictures, and, I, and I, I could not believe, I was texting people, I was like, you see that? And it was a flag... Uh, at the top, there's blue flag, white letters, and it used a four-lettered word that starts with the letter F, Joe Biden. And it was on a big flagpole. And underneath it was the white Christian flag. And I'm looking at this thing going, wait, it's got to be two different flags. It's like an optical illusion until I saw the person waving it. F. Joe Biden, Christian flag. Wait a minute. And then I saw some other folks who were also carrying flags. Uh, There was one person who had two in his hand. One, that was the flag I just mentioned with the profanity and obscene obscene statement. And the other one was a flag uh, similarly colored that said, Jesus saves. And they're waving it. I'm looking at this and I'm going, oh Lord, God forbid, God forbid. I have a lot of family members who don't know Jesus. Uh, Like my cousin and his wife and his kids are the only ones I know in my entire family. And I had a lot of family who were starting to watch the services and were actually coming to church. And then after the last two and a half years or so of everything that's been happening, I was talking to a couple people in my family just asking questions, what are you thinking, and all that kind of stuff. And that one particular person who said to me, um, I was really starting to, to consider uh, what it would mean to believe in Jesus, considering coming to church, all that kind of stuff, more regularly, all that. But after what I've seen with all those Christians, I don't want anything to do with it. Because what you guys probably don't realize, what we don't realize is what you see depicted as Christianity, profanity flags with Jesus save stuff, there's this evil syncretism where we're talking about the love of God, the truth of God, and what people are seeing is foul, ruthless, disgusting behavior. And brothers and sisters, enough is enough. Because of the way some Christians, self-professing Christians, are portraying themselves because of certain political ideological connections, verse 24 is now true. The name of God is blasphemed among the unbelievers because of you. The name of Jesus is being dragged through the mud. In the name of Jesus, there's such outlandish, disgusting behavior And so what Paul says is, look, you have to understand the wrath of God for self-righteous finger pointers. You have to be careful that you're not self-deluded, thinking that you're somehow going to escape God's judgment. Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, some people can't even see their own sin because they have committed themselves to such grievous unrighteousness that they can't even see the truth of it. 
and they think they're doing God a favor by being so disgusting with their language and the mistreatment of one another. And by the way, it's not just conservative-leaning people. It's all across the board. And so he goes on to say, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them the invisible attributes, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. In other words, you know better. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor did they give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Do you notice when unrighteousness causes us to suppress the truth, it affects both our thinking and our hearts? People claim to be wise. They're like, I'm the one who really knows. I've done the research. I've watched the YouTube videos. And they have become fools because they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for lesser idols like political power. And therefore, God has given them over to their lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring the bod- their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they have worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Paul's not done yet. And you're like, oh. Because you and I as Christians, we've heard this preach on those, those wicked people outside the church. Bro, judgment begins with the household of God. We have to realize that. And so he goes on and he says, Since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to be be done. Sins of commission. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And here's some examples. Evil, covetousness, malice. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Gossip, slander, hating God, insolent, haughty, boastful, and my favorite, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And about a year and some change ago, somebody sent me a video. They don't go to our church or anything. They're just like, our, our, you know, I'm sending this out to all the pastors. And it was a video of this pastor standing up and preaching. And he was saying, you need to vote for this person. It was like a local, I don't know, mayor or something like that. He's like, you need to vote for this person because he is the baddest, most ruthless SOB that we have. And the church erupted. I watched this video like, wait, what is going on? These Christians are applauding and approving of ruthlessness, of boastfulness, of all kinds of malicious talk. Look at verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but you tell them. Yeah, use those nasty words. That's right. You get them. Ruthless. It doesn't matter. We got to win. What in the world are we doing, Christians? Don't we realize that this is behavior which is repulsive to God? But the self-righteous finger pointer will be the one who is so not self-aware and so self-deluded that they will continue to say, well, I can say this and I can do this because look at them. Look how bad they are. No. No, 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 no. And we see, as you see, uh, the priest and the prophet, they stumble, they fall, because there was this wink, wink handshake 
the leaders and the people had this under the table agreement. I won't challenge you and your behavior, the leaders would say. I won't preach hard messages. I'll make it comfortable and easy. So long as you make sure that you keep, you know, giving so that way my life is comfortable. And, and then I'm going to preach these simple messages, but you got to promise that you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna do your part. And that's exactly what we see happening more and more. Let me see if I can find this. The time is coming, Paul says, when people will not endure sound teaching, but they, having itching ears, will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's not a day in the future. That's now. We're accumulating people. I, I know people who have left their churches who preach the gospel. I know pastors. I'm having lunch on Wednesday with a bunch of pastors who weep, literally, a couple, weep because people they love have left their church and sit at home and watch pastors who tickle their ears. And so God says, my people, verse 6, are destroyed for lack of knowledge. They just don't know me. They profess to know me. But as Paul says, you know what? You can profess to know God, but the reality is the proof is in the pudding. Do you deny him by your works? Because if you profess with your mouth that you know God, but you deny him by how you live, you're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And so it says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And then I want you to see these two things, how they parallel together. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being priest to me. And then he says this, and since you have forgotten the law of your God. Let me, let me put those two together. Because you've rejected knowledge and you have forgotten the law of your God. Rejected knowledge, forgotten God's word. Rejected knowledge, forgotten God's word. The more we sidetrack and put this away, the more likely we are to fall into you don't know God. Now, what I'm about to say, again, step on toes, I deleted this from the sermon and then I put it back and then I deleted it again, but I put it back this morning. I feel so convicted. I'm gonna confess to you right now. I deleted it because I was, I was, I didn't have the courage. I was acting as a coward. Because I'm, I'm, I, deep down, I want to be liked. Our world is filled with self-professing God-knowers who, based on the evidence of their words, behaviors, desires, and treatment of others, prove that they don't know God at all. And so, we say, oftentimes in churches, who is to say who knows God and who doesn't? Who, who made you judge and jury to say who, go not, who knows God and who doesn't? Not me. God is the one who says it. And how God has said it is in his book. And so people who are racist do not have a true knowledge of God. People who feel justified to slander others do not have a true knowledge of God. People who embrace and defend sexual sins like pornography, homosexuality, or non-marital sex do not have a true knowledge of God. People who consider themselves morally superior to others do not have a true knowledge of God. 
And the reason I can say these things is because it's not me. I didn't make this up. It's because the Bible is very clear and it addresses all those issues. And the one who knows the Lord will run from iniquity. And there's a lot of people who profess to know God but do not actually know him. Instead, what's happening, brothers and sisters, is people, the last little text here, Jeremiah 4, we're becoming wise and doing evil. We don't know how to do good. Why don't we know how to do good? Because we've assumed we know what's in this book, but we don't. And therefore, no knowledge because we've forgotten. But God's word abides. Now, there's a lot here. You probably feel the weightiness of this, and I do. So I have to always end with the good news. Because again, (laughs) I don't want to be hated. And so when I come across this text, my heart soars. This is where my confidence comes from, and I pray it's yours. This is the covenant that the Lord will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them. I will plant my word inside of you, God says. I'm going to write it on your hearts so you know exactly what to do and you have the right affections to do it. And I will be your God and you will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Why is it that people will come to know God regardless of your station in life, whether you're rich or poor, educated, uneducated, ethnicity, it does not matter. Why will you know the Lord? Because I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You and I are not saved by our good works. You and I are saved for good works. And the guilt that we feel, God's saying, you are guilty and you know it. He also gives us the soothing assurance. And yet, if you will acknowledge your guilt, confess your guilt, I will forgive you. And your friends may remember your sin and you may remember your sin, but God says, I will never remember your sin anymore. It's drowned in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus has come and he has died for us and rose for us, we know that our sins are forgiven and that God promises life in his name. And when we believe in the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and it circumcises our hearts, making it soft if it was stone, writing God's desires on our hearts so that we can, with affection and excitement and passion, obey God and have the motive and energy to do it. And we can be reassured time and time again that every time Satan accuses us of being guilty of sin, we can confidently stand before Satan and say, I know, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm guilty. But my God's mercy and grace is greater than my guilt. So God promises new life, new loves, new longings, and it all flows from his son, Jesus Christ, who says to us by faith, I am your God, you are my people, I am for you, who can be against you? 
You are my treasured possession. You are to me a kingdom of priests. You are part of my holy nation. Now go and tell of the wonderful things I've done for you. I've forgiven you. And I've made you my own. And that's how we get liberated from guilt. God sets us free. And Lord, we thank you for your overwhelming love for us. For an hour today, we have heard nothing but guilt. We've heard nothing of judgment. We've heard nothing but judgment. We've heard nothing of, but sin. And so God, I pray that us who are gathered in this place, we would willingly confess to you that we acknowledge our guilt before you. You are a holy God. We have committed sins of omission because we have not done the good and right things we should have. We have committed sins of commission. We have repeatedly done things we ought not to have. And God, we stand before you. We sit before you. We kneel before you. We raise our hands before you, acknowledging we are guilty and deserve nothing but your judgment. And yet, in your overwhelming love, you have offered us forgiveness. And you have purchased redemption. And by the blood of Jesus and because of his empty tomb, you have secured for all time eternal life that we may know you, experiencing your grace and forgiveness, being set free from the bondage of our guilt. And I pray, Lord, you would liberate people today from the weightiness of their sin and grant to them new life, new loves, new longings. And as we close our service with this song, extolling the love of God. I pray you put it in our hearts, the joy that we need to sing it well. And we'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen.